I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Sharak Zaidzadeh. Sharak is the CEO of Accepto. Sharak is a seasoned technologist and a leader with over 29 years of contribution to modern computing architecture, device identity, platform trust elevation, large IoT initiatives, and ambient intelligence research with more than 25 issued and pending patents. Before Accepto, he was a senior principal technologist contributing to Intel Corporation for 25 years in a variety of leadership positions where he architected and led multiple billion-dollar product initiatives. In this episode, we discuss evolving authentication, SSO and MFA challenges, anomalous behavior detection, enforcing least privilege, his time with Intel, AI and machine learning, multi-cloud security, securing home users, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Chirac, how are you today? Thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. How, yeah. How's everything for you? Everything is going excellent, even though we're in this kind of crazy times, um, as I'm sure you're you're dealing with, is is the constant adaption in, um, as we say in security, you have to kind of adapt and overcome, even though we still have in the military. But how, how have you and your team and organization kind of uh, changed and adapted to this this new way of working? I think adapt and overcome is a is a fantastic overview of um, what uh, what the case, what the situation is. I think actually is um, there is a silver lining behind all of this, and um, all of us recognizing that um, there is actually a possibility of being as effective, at least in in our world in cyber. And um, we are fortunate, unlike some of the service organizations, that they can't. Um, survive in such environment it, it has been okay with us and we we have adapted and we have overcome and to my surprise and to the surprise of many of our customers they they, they have been able to continue their business um, and the efficiency of the team members is is good of course our heart goes to people who are in the service business and they're hurting both economically and and also um, physically as well because they're more exposed to to COVID-19 than the rest of us who can have the luxury of being able to work from home. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's interesting with a lot of the security teams that, that I've had the, the opportunity to work with over the years. Yeah, people have um, been able to adapt from the work from home pretty well. Uh, we certainly see you know some, some areas that have had pretty ingrained socks where there's teams that are doing three shifts and you know they've had to adapt. But it's, it's interesting to see the technology be in place that really allows us to continue to kind of monitor and, and maintain the, the safety or at least some of the sanity of some of the networks. Tell us a little bit about the technology that you're working on now. I mean, certainly you, you've kind of had this very interesting background, which I'd love to get into too, um, you know, with the work that you did with Intel and your many, many patents. <laughs> uh, but what, what, do you, what are some of the projects that you're working on now with, and basically what, what problems are you trying to solve? Um, 
Well, first of all, thank you. Um, it, I have I've been fortunate um, working in really cool technologies from onset of working for Intel um, all the way to to now. Uh, so I've been surrounded by really good people, especially partners in the industry. Um, so today, what we're working on, which is a continuation of what we started several years ago, is this concept of passwordless continuous authentication, uh, which fundamentally is um, based on the, the fact that authentication is not a single event, but is a continuum. And, and what is cool about it is that um, we basically get rid of binary authentications like passwords and two uh, FAs and MFAs that are not uh, effective enough and, and, and use behavior analytics um, before at authentication and, and post authorization, which is the most important piece um, to detect anomalies and, and basically usher the, the session to either log out or, or escalate and step up as needed. Um, it's a very cool thing. It's, and, the, and the reason it is cool is because uh, we have really good um, set of customers that are frontiers in this area and are early adopters, recognizing that the old ways um, don't work. I, I was talking to a, a peer of mine, a CISO at, um, at a large organization over the weekend, actually. And she was telling me that she doesn't want the 2007 product anymore. She wants something that is 2020 or 2025. And that's exactly what we are working on. We're, we're trying to learn from our customers real time. Um, you use the word opening, uh, adapt and overcome. That's exactly what we're trying to do uh, on a daily basis. This is what keeps it very exciting for us. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think one of the, the traps that I think a lot of folks in technology and security feel is, Okay, well, we solved the problem, so it's time to move on, you know, and we've had the issues with usernames and passwords going back, you know, 40, 50 years. It's been been the same thing. It's it's really hard to, uh, you know, once somebody's logged in or, you know, to really authenticate, is this, is this a good login? Is this a bad login? Is this a known user? Are they using multiple devices from two different locations? Um, and so, you know, we've certainly seen a big push to single sign-on and multi-factor authentication, but what I've seen in the incident response world is there's been a greater attempt now for attackers to do credential scraping of single sign-on. Uh, recently, I saw one for, you know, they were, it was a very interesting phishing attempt where the organization received an email um, saying it was from a system administrator that in, you know, probably doing some DNS recon figured out, okay, this, this organization uses Okta. And they said, you know, we know, you know, through our our Zoom protocols is that you're not following proper dress code for remote meetings. Please sign into Okta now to accept that you understand the new policies and you're going to watch the training video. And so getting people to, you know, basically go into their Okta portal and try to then scrape those credentials. So it, oh it seems God. to be, you know, just, just because we, we kind of fix the problem, it doesn't go away. No, absolutely. I, I think this is very, very key because it is a continuous battle. I mean, I, I mentioned that we do continuous authentication. The battle against the, the bad guys and the threat actors is continuous because if you think about it, it's basically a balloon. <clears throat> if, if I can draw the analogy to um, financial uh, fraud, uh, fundamentally, every time our financial institutions squeeze one side of the balloon, 
the other side pops up. It's an, an issue of ROI for the threat actors. Um, there, there's, phishing is such a low-hanging fruit. Credential, credential, stealing credentials is such a low-hanging fruit for, for the threat actors. I mean, you have seen the Verizon report for the last five years. The, the doesn't change. Credentials, <laughs> it doesn't change, exactly. Yeah. 70, 70 to 80% are always because of credentials. Uh, five or five to eight percent are always for misconfiguration. So right out of the gate, you have um, north of eighty-five percent of your data breaches are the two basic things of configuration and policy orchestration, and then the big ticket item is the eighty percent is the credentials. Yeah, and it's you know one of the challenges is you know certainly having done you know, more incident response engagements than I can care to remember, but. You know, once the attackers get in, it's it's very big on using credentials and uh, privilege escalation. It's you know they're living off the land on using this, and then it becomes very difficult for SOC teams, threat hunters, and IR folks to say, "Gosh, you know, again, they're they're blending in with the noise. Is this a good login?" So how you know, how do we solve that problem once they're in, and we know that we can, we know that they might be in there or they're not. Like, how how do you try to separate the signal to noise? of behavioral um, if you collect the data then then the anomalies are easier to detect and the noise and the signals that and the controls that have lost their efficacy and and their uh, efficiency they, they will basically um, stand out um, because there there is a norm of behavior uh, that each individual account owner has and all of a sudden, when you come in and you see that all of a sudden Doug or Shirok is uh, using downloading 16 terabyte of data and he, they never, neither one of them ever do that. Oh, and by the way, for the last one week, they have been working very late at night, right? Um, and, and that's very strange, right? So you can take a look at the behavior and the deltas and the behavior and identify anomalies. And then that way, you know, by doing a commonality analysis, you can identify the noise as well and, and make sure that you don't in, insert too much unwanted friction to the system uh, where, where the anomaly can be just um, resolved by a simple step up authentication or, or a policy change or enforcing zero trust for a certain period of time till you get you gain your confidence again on the individual that is that is using the credential. Does that make sense? It does. It almost seems like you know we're, we're starting to you know as we go to the zero trust world, we're starting to migrate to almost network you know like NAC or network authentication controls where instead of we're worried less about the device, but it really is, it you know we're saying identity seems to be everything these days when we're managing the security of networks. It always has one. It just seems now more than ever with dispersed cloud computing. Um, in apps that live in the cloud and not on-prem seems to be the bigger the bigger concern. Well, okay, so so it is th that's a very good point. So it is it is the device, it is the identity, it is the apps, it is the type of data that you use. Um, it, it is all of it together. So it's not just the fact that okay, we can we can let go of the endpoint security point. The endpoint security 
becomes part, part of your identity, right? We, we have a word that, that we have coined called identity for life. Identity for life um, is, is um, something that allows you to aggregate your devices, your network, your habits, and everything else together to establish that normality about you. And, and, it, and then use a predictive model to say, Doug is about to log in in the next five minutes using his Mac uh, uh, device and his phone uh, and his Mac are both of them are on the same IP address and the same Wi-Fi. And the most likelihood that this is truly Doug versus Shirok um, is 94.3%. Is and then when you happen to do this, depending on the risk, I might not even ask you for an authentication. I might just give you an audit trail if I want to. So, so you're absolutely right. It's, 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 um, it's not just a device. It's, it's a whole bunch of things, right? It's the, the apps in the cloud themselves. They have a particular fingerprint of what apps in the cloud do you use? Do you use your Jira? Do you use your GitHub, right? Do you use your uh, ServiceNow? Right? All of these apps and their, your usage model becomes part of your fingerprint. And that is the behavior of you that, that we classify that the first five minutes of your, your login, we know that you usually go to your Gmail and you go to your Jira and you go to your GitHub. And that itself is the graph of the events that are expected out of you. Yeah, it's funny, you know, having done quite a bit of dead box forensics too, um, you, you start to almost be able to see browser behavior, just, just using that as an example, on a daily basis. Um, when I'm doing browser analysis, I can tell people's daily habits. And then when they start deviating from that, you know, whether it be two to three weeks before they might leave a job, you, you start, they start doing things they might not even be thinking of doing um, that's detectable, quite frankly. Absolutely. This is, this is the... This is the mother of all uh, recipes for um, detecting insider threats, right? When when somebody is on the um, on the horizon of leaving the company, and or or if they're you classify them that um, they might be disgruntled, you actually can see that abnormalities. Uh, th these are these are things like I mentioned earlier, um, working late at night, excessive number of hours, right? Um, now, if they are working excessive amount of hours, but then at the same time, those excessive hours are significant amount of data download um, or, or going places that they usually don't go, that is an early warning for you. How, um, how you know, and sometimes there's a little bit of a concern, let's say, you know, when we're going to say, geez, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I don't want to be spying on my employees, but yeah, to me, it's like we're already watching a lot of what they do. This is just correlating. Do you, do you ever run into those issues where people say, well, I, I don't feel comfortable watching my, my users this closely? Well, the, the enterprises that we serve, they, they usually have their financial institutions, healthcare, pharma, and, and, and um, even in the cases of colleges, there is a fine line of privacy versus safety and data security. If you think about it, it is not an issue of snooping on the employees to see how effective they are. It is an issue of, uh, and that, that's the job of the management, right? To, to make sure that your employees are effective and they're uh, fully utilized and everything else. It is about actually making sure that the 
assets that are your IP are not exposed and you're not going to get a black eye because of a breach. You remember the Equifax breach, right? Can't forget it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so um, 140 million plus people's social security and information and everything else breach. And then they lost almost 30% of their um, market cap in, in a single day. Um, when, when it comes to this, which is the livelihood of actually the employees of a company as well, equally, it's not like the, the big evil company is only caring about themselves. And IP of a uh, pharma company is important to the employees because that's where, where they have um, the, the assets are there or the data about an insurance company, about the patients um, and, and a healthcare provider is very critical. So it's not that you're snooping on the, on the employees. So I, we do hear this and we don't differentiate it. Privacy and security are two in a box. By design, you need to, to have a system that protects people on the, both on making them secure and prevent the PII to, to be breached. Now, if an employee is careless or a policy is wrongly has been there since 2014 and nobody has audited, and that is a root of, um, you know, uh, doubt whether this is going to cause a potential breach. Yes, you have to monitor it. If an employee that doesn't have access to financial data and all of a sudden is trying to get all of the financial data and their job is purely engineering, why is it that they're looking at uh, what is the projected earning um, and, and, and do they have a business to do so? In that case, I, most of our customers don't classify that as snooping. It is, it is about what data sets do you need to have access to? And as I mentioned, 6% of the data breaches are due to misconfiguration. Do you really need to have access to this application if your job does not require you to have access to it? And if not, let me shut it down or at the minimum, put a step up authentication on it. Yeah, it's does the, that make sense? It does. It's the old the old issues of uh, you know concept of least privilege. I mean, we we preach it. <laughs> we really do have to kind of um, you know really force organizations to adopt that greater um, because in the end, yeah, what why does this user need this much access? And it's not that you don't trust them. It's you know it's just a misconfiguration. It could be a problem that either their account gets compromised or they can even accidentally click on something. I mean, bad things can happen accidentally. And I've seen that happen, gosh, more, more times than, than I can count too, where, you know, maybe somebody just had access to something they shouldn't have. So it's, it's putting in those controls and auditing them on a regular basis. Say, geez, you know, let's, let's step this back to a way that um, is more practical. I mean, you, you exactly. I mean, think about it. An employee that has, um, that has, um, been lured to click on a link to go to Okta for dress code on Zoom meetings. I mean, think about the combination of that. Is, uh, in that case, when, if you do such click and you go there and your configuration is not there and all of a sudden I can detect that someone who has done an account takeover is going places that the good employee that unintentionally clicked on something by mistake um, now is looking at some data and downloading significant amount of data that itself is is a perfect example of why you need to have 
some sort of a continuous authentication and monitoring the behavior, um, the digital behavior of the individuals, right? Definitely. So one of the things you touched on earlier that I want to get back to was uh, your time with Intel. I mean, you had a very, very long career there. How did, uh, how did you transition from, you know, from what I'm seeing is really, you know, working on, gosh, you know, the really early Pentium designs to, to getting into the security realm? It, it was a transition. I, I think um, Intel is an amazing company and has always been a, a, a mega company that produces really good products. We, we had an opportunity at Intel. I started as a chip designer at Intel. And um, after a while, part of the chip design was provisioning and designing new security features. And then from the hardware security, we went to firmware security to, to establish secure booth. And for that, we needed to have some hardware features. And then from hardware security and firmware security, I went to application layer security. And eventually in the last 10 years, I was focused on identity management and, and behavioral analytics. And, and then in between, I, I worked on a project called Ambient Intelligence Research which was about anomaly detection in a physical space. And um, my wife started Accepto uh, at the same time. So she was working on cyber and I was working on physical space to detect anomalies. And then uh, later on when I left Intel to join her to help out, basically we combined the two together and, and put our brains together with, with the CTO of the company to do this anomaly detection approach towards cyber. And, and bringing AI ML into into use for for anomaly detection and um, classification and um, identification and early warning uh, for for our customers. Gotcha. And you know, you you, you mentioned you know, one of the one of the big buzzwords that we're using in the industry these days. I, I think deserves its place, but certainly is you know machine learning and AI. Uh, what, how do you kind of differentiate those, and how do you see them? helping in ways that maybe a human can't, but also where we still need a human. Um, you know, a lot of what I've seen is, you know, it's, it's great at assisting people making decisions that they just couldn't normally make because there's just too much data to sift through. It, it, there is in AI ML. So, so first of all, the difference between AI and ML is, is basically the, the AI, every time that you write a code, and, and if the end condition, that's basically, you can classify that. Uh, poor man's level as 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 an AI, ML is is the ability to um, basically associate a behavior um, associated with an event and learn from the past experiences, whether it's supervised or not, um, and react to um, abnormalities and 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 whatnot. So it it, it is the difference here is that. One of the key things about machine learning is the ability to um, go through significant amount of data. So that significant amount of data is um, allows us to do classification and do commonality analysis. So when when I see if I was going to go after an, an an company that has hundred people. Um, and 100,000 people versus 100 people and do a commonality analysis um, on their use cases or whether their accounts has been taken over or whether there is a commonality of a particular endpoint and a device that is coming in for 
20 different employees trying to making an attempt to log in through the VPN. That commonality analysis is, is allowed by the machine learning piece and, and the ability to sniff through all the data that we have and identify some sort of a commonality as well as some level of abnormality. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think humans overestimate their ability to um, make those correlations, uh, but it just does not scale. <laughs> it does not scale well. It's really where where machines can uh, can benefit us, where we just can't. There's just too much for you to to consciously process at any given time. It, it is. I mean, the, the, this sheer ability to to produce behavioral models and and associating some level of risk with those those behaviors it, it really delivers an amazing transformative technology um, to that that allows us to mitigate um, identity impersonation um, and and it, when it comes to access fraud right we, what what is key here is analyzing and verifying the identity and the behavior by inferring contextual data and also not only contextual, it's contextual and behavioral because contextual data are again are binary and they can be duplicated, but behavioral is different. That's how you detect whether your spouse or your child is happy or unhappy because you detect that and you have the ability to infer their, their behavior based on a past um, history that you have with them. So you definitely know if they're happy or sad or um, they're tired or not. That's exactly what we need to do in order to deliver a higher level of platform trust, not, not only at authentication, but actually pre-authentication and post-authorization. B- because post-authorization is where all the evil happens, right? Yeah. So, you know, what are some of the t- upcoming technologies? Yeah, you know, we certainly see you know, more, more cloud adoption, IoT. How do those fit into this model? I mean, are, are there areas that you've, you have either concern with or that you're actually already building towards knowing that this is um, maybe a new way that people are, you know, particularly that we're seeing now with COVID, there's been a huge uptick in, in adoptive adaption of cloud technologies. Um, you know, when you look at the enterprise, how are how prepared do you really think people are for these new type of technologies kind of entering the overall enterprise design? Well, okay, so let, let me let me divide the, the sure. question into two pieces. Number one is what type of technologies that we we see upcoming, and um, what, what are we working on? And the second thing is is about COVID and and going to cloud and what are the risks there? So. Um, on the first one, as far as what type of technologies, definitely from from everyone and their cousin, you hear today that they're going they're going to use AIML, and um, so definitely AIML is a key um, technology that is going to be uh, adopted by many of the vendors and and therefore many of the customers to fight against the cyber cyber crime that exists, and. In order to do that, again, you need to focus on the big ticket items, the 70, 80% that comes from the credentials. How do you use AIML in identifying uh, credential uh, you know, take, account takeovers and, and whatnot? 
how do you uh, detect the behavior and how do you rely on human behavior, which is um, very complex to, to mimic. Um, and, and how do you armor against, on the other side of it, AIML-powered attacks themselves, where, where the weaponization of AI is, is already a reality that is happening already. So in that context, what, what we think that is gonna happen in the next, um, uh, basically from now, we have been working on it obviously, but uh, most of our competitors are gonna go there as well, is use of AIML and what we call the next generation authentication and streaming. And what I mean by that is not only using of the AIML, how do you stream the data to your AIML engine? And that's actually what we, the second part of the first question is what are we focused on? We're focused on in ingesting data and feeding our AIML engine to detect anomalies and abnormalities and identify commonalities on the threat vectors that they, they hit an enterprise. How do we do that? We basically have a smart data hub and um, that we ingest data from different sources that tens and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent already on enterprise to ingest the data and associate that uh, ingested data to a session. Um, I give you a very specific example. Um, let's say that it is case of your Splunk and your, your, your SIM is, happens to be Splunk or Qradar or, or whatever your favorite Sumo Logic, your favorite uh, SIM provider is. The data that we ingest from the SIM will allow us to almost in real time detect anomalies on individual accounts and on the cohort of um, the users that they might have some sort of a um, uh, commonality as far as the attack surface when somebody is attacking a particular organization, a particular bank or, or whatnot, right? And, and in that scenario, by ingesting data from assets such as your, your Akamai's of the world and Splunk's of the world and IBM curators of the world and Sumo Logic, we unleash the power of our AIML engine to ingest the data on, on the behavior of individual and the cohort that they belong to. And that includes their devices, their browsers, their texts that they have been using, um, the mobile device proximity, the Wi-Fi and the network that they're on, the MAC addresses, all of those comes into the picture as individual binary uh, solutions that are integrated into one piece. And that, that is the fingerprint of Doug versus Stroke and the behavior that I have. So that's, that's the first one. The second question you, you asked was about COVID, post-COVID-19 and in general, the transformation to cloud organizations continue to have this hybrid mode of on-prem versus cloud for we think that for the next decade. And the reason is because there are certain rules and regulations regarding privacy and security of the data that needs to be complied. And some people are gonna continue putting some of their data uh, only on their own data centers, which fundamentally makes sense. And for that reason, you have to have a solution that is covering both. And that's exactly what the future is gonna be, is a hybrid mode. It, it is again, the, the balloons uh, analogy. 
you squeeze one side and you go all the way to, to the cloud, and then you recognize that, oh no, you need to bring some of the data back because the privacy regulations, whether it's GDPR or the California one or, or whatever region that you're in, requires that you protect some of this um, data. And the only way to do that is making sure that you have full control behind your own firewalls, right? Because at the end of the day, you have to assume that everybody is breachable. And what do you do if you're a breach? And how do you know? And how fast can you know? So post-COVID-19, we see that there's going to be a surge that is driven by two, two particular drivers. One is this transition to the cloud. And number two is because we never trained our employees on how to work 100% of our employees to how to work from home. Right? There's a surge of home devices and BYOD devices. There is a hygiene associated with the devices that needs to be in place. All of those post-COVID-19, we, we foresee that is going to result in a surge of attacks and, and birth of new types of attacks, right? Obviously, you, you can't monitor um, the behavior of the people in, inside their home and what clicks they do if they have their own BYOD um, and, and we need to be super careful and educate more than anything else our employees. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a good point. I've seen many posts on the various online communities that, I, that I'm part of um, where people say, you know, how are they how are they monitoring VPN traffic for people at home? Do they have access to those devices? Should they be scanning inside those? Um, you know, if there's an ongoing pen test, you know, and these things have, they don't, you know, depending on how the VPN set up, you know, can, can they have access to that? So it brings in a whole bunch of things that I don't think people really thought about when we just all of a sudden said, yep, everybody's working from home and the security landscape suddenly changes it, you know, <laughs> go back to our beginning, but you, you, you have to adapt and overcome. And it's, uh, it's some interesting new challenges that we're going to have as all of a sudden, you know, we have more and more out in the field and we're everybody's on a different ISP connecting into various cloud services and maybe a VPN at the same time. The, the, the silver lining is actually this, this is forcing us to educate our employees a little bit more and getting them to, to recognize that um, their hygiene when at home might actually trickle into the corporate um, uh, a corporate disaster for the enterprise that they are working for and they actually uh, enjoy the job that they have. And of course, in this economical uh, disaster situation, disaster situation that we're in, you should, the last thing that you want to do is do harm on your, on your company that has kept you on board and you're continue working remotely. So you want to make sure that you're well-educated on, on the topics. The, the education is a big part of it, um, really a big part of this whole equation of COVID-19. Uh, the example that you started the conversation with is, is exactly that. Don't, don't click on anything that looks like uh, suspicious. Really dress code on Zoom, right? Um, and, and kind of establish a protocol on if it is a corporate email that is coming to you is going to have this type of pay attention to these type of signatures on, on the email and, and whatnot. Right. Yeah. And where it's coming. 
It, it does. It presents. And I think that's, that's the fear a lot of organizations have is, oh, we don't want to talk about that. You know, how, what our attack vectors might look like. But if now this is the time more than ever to get out there and say, hey, look, we're seeing an uptick in these type of wacky Zoom dress code things. Make sure everybody is educated on this. These are great learning opportunities. Yep, exactly. Hey, Chirac, where where can people find you online? Um, we basically the the company name is called Accepto.com. Accepto with two T's. Um, that, that's very important. You accept to do something. It's it's basically an assertion of your intent. So uh, Accepto.com, and if you search for behavioral authentication or passwordless authentication or continuous authentication. Uh, you should be able to to find us, um, particularly if you're interested in getting rid of your binary authentication. We have some um, really good demos and capabilities and pilots that you that uh, people who are interested in this area we can we can provide them. We also provide uh, some sort of a consulting and a manifesto for the next generation authentication. If you're a um, front runner and a, and a early adopter of technology, we, we love to have a chat with you and see how we can be part of it as a technology partner for, for people who are listening to this podcast. Very cool. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.